embark upon our study of Scripture, would you join with me for prayer? Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for what you have done for the praise of your own name in calling us to salvation, in planting a church in Newtown, Connecticut so many years ago, how you've been building your church, that church that our Savior said that the gates of Hades will not prevail against. Though Satan and his minions would assault your truth, we thank you for those faithful believers you plant all throughout the globe to lift high the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the good news of salvation. We ask you at this time of our study that you would guide and direct us by your Spirit, help us to understand your truth, convict us in ways in which we have not been obedient and applying that, encourage us towards righteousness to the glory of our great King, we ask it. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Peter. Mike, I'm echoing up here. I don't know if it's the monitors or, or what it is. As you're uh, joining me in Second Peter 3, we are ending our study of this wonderful epistle of, of Peter. Last week on your bulletin fronts, there was a there was at least 12 reasons giving for why delve into a study of prophecy. One of the grandest that I think was listed there last week was that about a third of the Bible was prophetic when it was originally penned. And to set aside the sections that deal with the future or prophetic events is to ignore a large part of which God has revealed Paul wrote that all Scripture is profitable to equip, and prophecy too is profitable. You look at how that every, all these prophetic passages that not only will exhort believers towards holiness and to a view for the future, look at how it, it stabilizes believers. I was driven in my devotions this morning to one of the doxologies the prophecy elicited in the Apostle Paul's life. As he's talking about the mystery of the resurrection, how that God's going to raise everyone in a future day, unbelievers to damnation, believers to eternal blessing in His presence. And as he unfolds this glorious doctrine, he says to the Corinthians, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable body will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil 
is not in vain in the Lord. Knowing that God has a plan for the future and all of redemptive history is going to culminate and climax exactly as God has said He would ought to elicit joy and stability in the life of the believers. For those without Christ, it ought to elicit great fear of the unknown or even the known if they know that they're not going to be spending their eternity in the presence of God. So they must rush to Jesus for mercy. It's been a great study in Second Peter. Chapter 1, Peter teaches us about a precious faith. He addresses the recipients and the promoters of the gospel of grace. And in chapter 2, he elicits warning about false teachers. Chapter 2 is everyone else. Everyone that does not take part in chapter 1 and every other message. The rise and the perpetration of false teachers all around. Both in the days of Peter and in the day of Christ's triumphant church today. And then we joined Peter in his third chapter just a short time ago. And to gain a little context, since this is all based upon the future, join me in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 1. This now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. A lot of the truths Peter brings to the surface are not new truths, they're old truths for a reminder for forgetful people. So I stir up your sincere reminder that you remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Verse 3, draw into close focus. Know this first of all, that in, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And while they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the, judgment, uh, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But they do, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So what to the, what to the false teachers look like a delay forever, indefinitely, boasting in their arrogance that we can carry on life any way we want, they should have been turning to Christ. Knowing that all the years since God has enacted redemption's plan, the clock's been ticking. And though it might seem like thousands of years to us, it's like a drop in the bucket to the eternal one. But it's eventually coming. He says in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come. It's going to come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. First time God took His creation out by way of water. 
The next time it's going to be by an, an, an implosion, a meltdown. And in light of the future, Peter says, since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You'll be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. The elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So as Peter has gotten our eyes on the future and what manner of people we ought to be living in light of then, living in light of the future, therefore, verse 14, getting into our text, on the grounds of everything He has delivered to us, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless, blameless. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. His delay is not impotence. It is not inability. God is waiting to draw in the last elect person to His eternal kingdom. And then it's all going to end. Regarded as patience, he says in verse 15, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do all the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You know, the hortatory the nature, the teaching dynamic of Peter comes to the foreground here in this last section of his second epistle. If you want to follow the action, they're centered around the four main verbs there. In the imperative voice of command, he speaks to us with divine authority as God speaks to his church, to those who are redeemed urging a particular course of conduct in action and attitude. He says to us, be diligent. Account. Thirdly, beware. And fourthly, grow. These in essence summarize not just his last admonitions, but the entire epistle. As he returns to themes he's already introduced us to in our study of Second Peter. So we're looking at four concluding exhortations that you must heed to be steadfast until He comes. Exhortations stemming from both Christian hope and concerning spiritual maturity. So I'd invite you to look at these four concluding exhortations. In verses 14 and 16, we see that these exhortations are concerning Christian hope. As, in other words, as you're expecting the Lord to return, while you are waiting, participle ongoing work here, while you're waiting as believers, that waiting is not just frittering time away, twiddling your thumbs, contemplating your navel, navel or sitting around eating bonbons. Jesus speaks to His church 
through the inspired pen of his apostle Peter. And he says, this is what ought to characterize your waiting. And he calls for action, verse 14. Since you look for these things, be diligent. Be diligent. Now, he'd already mentioned uh, in his practical letter back in chapter 1 the significance of diligence to the life of the believer. In verses 5 through 10 in in the first chapter, it was in reference to salvation. Make your calling and election sure. Don't be like those found in Matthew 7 that think they're on their way into God's kingdom and yet are barred from the kingdom by the king himself saying, I never know you, knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Be diligent. Make sure you know what you believe. Make sure you're in. Make sure you're a Christian. Be diligent about the matter of the gospel and that you've turned from your sin and embraced Christ as your substitute. Recognize fruit of the gospel in your life and, and growth. Though it's progressive in its sanctification, there's at least fruit validating that you're in His kingdom. Be diligent about it. Recognize that fruit in your life as you await your glorification. Live in that tension until you get your glorified body when you will be perfect. Progress in holiness. So this verse restates in different terms the summons to a godly life that he had already talked about back in verse 11. That's why this is part two of living in light of then. He says, since these things be so... In verse 11, verse 14, since you look for these things, be diligent. God's clock is running. It is ticking. And Peter speaks to us in our diligence about peace, that we not fear the day as those without Christ. You know, when when Peter introduced us to this meltdown that's going to take place, when God takes out His creation, that ought to elicit fear in the midst of those that don't know Christ. But for the redeemed, it's blessed assurance, as we sang this morning. To have Christ is to have everything. To have that strong sense of peace that passes all human understanding, that sense of settledness that comes only from the gospel. So that when difficulties and turmoil come and the unbelieving world looks on your life, they wonder, why are you sitting there calm, cool, and collected? It's due to a life of obedience in Christ. John in his first epistle talks about uh, how that uh, love that's abiding in us needs to be perfected as we continue bringing into conformity and consistency our lives of godliness. Why is it that we live a life of obedience as John writes about? So that we can be confident in the day of judgment. That's what he says there in 1 John 4.17. The similar parallel thought that Peter gives us. If you're living for Jesus, a life that is true, there will be peace at His return. 
What gives this peace is a type of life characterized by, according to the text of Scripture here, spotlessness and blamelessness. So he says, be diligent. Be found by him in peace that is produced by a spotless life, a life in which blamelessness exists. Spotless character. Being pure without fault. That's one thing that we celebrate at the Lord's table. We come to the table and in order to partake worthily, it's number one, only for believers. And it's for those believers who are keeping current with their sin issues with others and with the Lord. That there be this spotless character in their lives. Stated differently, this truth encapsulated by Paul as he writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2, verse number 15, Philippians 2.15, in, in this particular passage, Paul just gave a command. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How often have you been guilty of that? And notice the rationale to the command of not grumbling and disputing. Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Yeah, while everyone else around you is grumbling, complaining, you be an island of righteousness in a sea of paganism all around you. Be above reproach. Live above the world so that you can be that light to the world shining on a hill which cannot be hidden. Be spotless. Keep your forgiveness details, your confession, your repentance of sin up to date with the Lord. So this peace floods the heart of the believer as they are pursuing a spotless life and a blameless reputation. Notice back in our text. Blameless reputation. That which is without moral defect. Remember about the sacrificial system we read in the Old Testament in our daily Bible reading as a church? What was required of a sacrificial animal that it be without blemish. There's our term. Blameless. Peter had already told us in regards to false teachers, false teachers are blots, they are blemishes, chapter 2 and verse 13. But believers are to make a point to be morally clean like Christ the spotless one. To be the visible manifestation of their Redeemer. People would be more inclined to believe in our message of redemption if they saw, saw this redemption more consistently worked out in our lives as spotless character and blameless reputation. This is the practical result of the implantation of the divine nature of Christ. This is so that according to Colossians 1.22, He will present you to Himself holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And these two virtues were definitely not in residence in regards to those who promote a different gospel 
Back in chapter 2, in verse 13, he says these teachers, they counted as pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their stains, their blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Could it be, saint, child of God, that a lack of peace in your life, could uh, a production of the anxiety would be to do a lack of diligence in pursuing a life of godliness? That there are too many holes in your holiness? That you're not tending to apply yourself and your sanctification through the means of grace that God's provided? He's given us so many resources. He's given us the, the assembly of believers, the intake of the Word. How can we disobey God and expect Him to produce in our lives peace when there's no prayer and praise, when there's not enough Scripture intake in our lives, when there's not the centrality of worship with the believers, an often focus of the Lord's table or fellowship, maybe there's a forsaking of the assembly is why peace eludes you. Maybe there's not enough time bathing in the Word and communion with your Father. Beloved believer, Peter speaks to you. He speaks to myself. And he says, be diligent. Be diligent to be found in peace as you're spotless and blameless. And after he says, be diligent, he says, account. Or regard, verse 15 Regard the patience. So it's not just manifestations in our behavior, but even the outlook of our attitudes. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Kind of piggybacking on what he told us last week that every elect one will come in as God ordained. And yet they will not come in to repentance, they will not come to Christ apart from your preaching the good tidings of great news. He's ordained the end to be people's salvation, and yet the means to the end being yours and my faithful proclamation of the gospel. Knowing that the day of the Lord's coming as a thief ought to affect how we conduct life in our evangelism. That that an opportunity of God's patience ought to heighten the church's zeal as he expands upon his earlier point made last week. We're to engage seeking the salvation of souls. We've got a job to do. I get so many emails and mailing circulars. Just, just one this week was uh, from... Uh, ABWE, Association Baptist of World Evangelism, as they were sharing another great story about what God's saving gospel did as people were faithful. And it talks about Nima, who was going to uh, some kind of uh, seamstress class, and they used uh, teaching entrepreneurial skills over in Tanzania as an avenue to get people in the church where they could preach the gospel to them. It was a means to an end. Everything captured as a gospel opportunity. They weren't just teaching people needlepoint so they could sit around drinking tea. They taught needlepoint sitting around drinking tea so that they could preach into their lives the good news 
of not only them being a great sinner, but Christ being an even better Savior. So Nema was saved through a sowing ministry as people were busy about the gospel and in light of the day of the Lord coming. Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace and, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. And to, to give weight to his argument, he imports the Apostle Paul. I love this. Uh, uh, he's, he, he, he brings Paul to the discussion showing us that all Scripture speaks with the same voice. That Peter and Paul were not in opposition, but uh, Peter supports his point. Notice, as, as we regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Paul said the same things as I've been saying to you, he says. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. I love that tongue-in-cheek expression. You know, this, this guy Paul delivered some things hard to, hard to understand. Peter is not saying that, that the Scriptures are not clear. God didn't muddle. God didn't mumble when He wrote His Word. There are some difficulties, difficult passages. But this word hard, hard to understand, refers to something difficult for the mind to grasp either because the statement that's given is ambiguous or because you, you could possibly misinterpret it. Peter admits there are Bible difficulties. How are we going to mesh two seeming contradictory, contradictory realities? Yes, we know that uh, this is the finite mind of man trying to understand the infinite mind of Christ. But these things hard to understand is not things that we are to twist to our own advantage as the false teachers do. Years ago, there was a Bible teacher riding through New York State on a train on his way to New England because New York is not New England. He was on his way there. And he went into a dining car for dinner. The man that sat down across for him, as it turned out, ended up being an atheist. Finding that his companion was a Bible teacher, the atheist began to rehearse all the Bible difficulties that he could conjure, whether it was early earth issues or how can you jive a sovereign, guy, a sovereign God with evil surrounding the world. He offered all these difficulties, citing one difficulty after another, but the man who was being attacked went, went right on eating. He was eating New England cod, a very bony fish, and as he ate, he pushed the bones aside. Finally, perturbed, the atheist asked him, well, what do you do with all those difficulties in the Bible? You're a Bible teacher. He said in gospel humility, I do with the difficulties just as I do with this cod. I eat the meat and put the bones aside for some fool to choke on. And he, though there was no malice in his heart in coming to this atheist, you're not going to be able to wrestle Scripture to the ground. You're not going to figure it all out, how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together. We just have to admit that the Bible teaches both. 
It gives us many seeming paradoxes. Who lives your Christian life? You or God? Yes, both. And numerous other difficult passages. Let me give you a a footnote here. A principle for faith and practice is that we need to build our theology on clear and unambiguous passages with undisputed meaning. Much of the heresy today is built on obscure texts. Enough said. Let's move on to a place I want to park for a second. Notice, as Peter introduces Paul, he says some of the things that he writes are hard to understand. Notice the response of the untaught and the unstable. They distort it. And they do so, the rest of Scripture, to their own destruction. Untaught and unstable, distort, they twist the Scripture. In Peter's day, as in ours, there was a proliferation of foolish and hurtful reasonings. There was a perverting of apostolic teaching about the future, among many things. Paul wrote as Peter about the second coming of Jesus. We know the Thessalonians persisted on misrepresenting Paul on this in a similar way as Hymenaeus and Philetus did about the resurrection in 2 Timothy 2. I'll just give you this one example. One of these hard passages, one of these parallel teachings that, that Paul gave that people would twist and distort to their own shame. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul, in speaking about the future, says, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him, don't be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And so as Paul would sit down with the beloved church at Thessalonica, he told them how God's calendar is all going to end and there were people coming in and twisting and they were wondering, did we miss it? Not at all. Furthermore, there are people twisting other items of eschatology or other doctrines. You look at some of Paul's other teaching, like that on uh, grace. People wanted to misuse grace for their own sensual purposes. You got the libertines that said, we're free in Christ, we can do anything, no holes barred. They'd misappropriate the call to liberty. Yeah, I'll give you one more footnote. For one, this is the clearest cut, succinct, implicit statements in all the Bible that affirms the writing of the Apostle Paul as Scripture. About 10 years ago, I was filling the pulpit in a church in Topanga Canyon, California. You say, yeah, where the fruits and nuts are, right? Well, I thought so because I was handed a note from a gentleman at the door 
about how the Apostle Paul was a false teacher. And he said, I hope this guy listens to the sermon. <laughs> but here we've got in Scripture, Peter, saying, Peter attesting Paul's words being the inspired word of God. When every New Testament apostle wrote or spoke, they knew they were speaking for God Himself. So that when they said, thus saith the Lord, it was indeed what God has said. This indicates that at the time that Peter was writing, Paul's writings were considered authoritative Scripture. No need for any new perspective on Paul as to whether or not he truly taught justification by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Peter says there's always going to be people that trifle with Scripture, trifle with doctrine, with this passage or that passage. They're going to distort it. Believers might not fully understand all of Scripture. But to twist the Scripture's obvious meaning, you do so to your own peril and destruction. I love what Hebert said in his commentary to this sort. He says, he says such individuals take these difficult passages and he said they, they rest them to their own, that, that word twist, twist them to their own ruin. He said that verb rest or distort used only here in the New Testament, means to twist or wrench, specifically to stretch on the rack, to torture. It is their repeated practice to take Paul's statements and twist and torture them like poor victims on the rack to force them to say what they want them to say. Governed by their own preconceived ideas, they strain and distort the words and meaning of Paul to gain support for their own views. Passages that are clear and unmistakable, they cannot readily so use. If the false teachers were already doing this in Peter's day, we need not be surprised at the twisted exegesis of the cults in our own day and age. Twisting Scripture, distorting Scripture. This is eisegesis reading into the text what's not there. It's using a great creative thought but not drawing God's objective meaning out of what he means by what he has said. Again, Peter says these are, these are untaught. Matter of fact, this, uh, this word, amethes, untaught, points not so much to a lack of knowledge. They know some of the right answers. They're orthodox. But it refers to a lack of training. It denotes a mind that is untrained and undisciplined in habits of thought, lacking in the moral qualities of a balanced judgment. They're untrained, they're unrestrained in their interpretation of Scripture. You, if you ever go to a church on vacation that's taken the Word of God away from the people, you're running hide. We want to release God's people on His Word. It needs no defense. It's a lion. It'll defend itself. There needs to be, yes, training. Training on interpretation of Scripture. But these were ignorant of basic principles of hermeneutics. Failing to see that, all right, what did Paul mean in this difficult passage by what he has said? How can we look at context of the whole book? The real issue is this that the misunderstanding was not due to difficulty on Paul's part, but their faulty manner of reading. So 
Peter gives us the first two imperatives, speaking to Christian hope, our future expectation. He says, be diligent and account. Account God's patience to be salvation. And then he urges towards spiritual maturity, verses 17 and 18. You need to recognize, beloved, the extreme danger. If you claim to be a Christian, if you're a believer, trying to remain status quo and not aggressively pursuing Christ-likeness. Furthermore is the parallel of when you expose yourself to false teaching, where you run the risk of being led astray. Paul writes to Timothy about some of the same sort of teachers that twist Scripture. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, let me recall to your remembrance what Paul said, similar to Peter. He said, remind them of these things. Solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. How are you going to be able to engage people with the truth? By be diligent to study the truth. Notice what he says in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed because you're accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter. It'll lead to further ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. They upset the faith of some. There's more distortion of the truth. So Paul comes alongside Peter to wage the same war. That even when you hang around those who believe error, you're hearing everything through their wrong worldview. You're being exposed to their error and deception and delusion. Peter says they are unprincipled men. Be cautious of those that want to speak into your life. Those that want to say there is no law. Those that are antinomian. They're unprincipled. Careful of keeping close company with false teachers. John warns us, don't even, don't even allow them in your house. Because you as a believer, even a growing and mature believer, can be led astray. How about Barnabas? According to Galatians 2.13, Barnabas was carried away by the impact of wavering Jewish believers during a crisis in Antioch. But I think an even grander example, as Peter launches this warning, Peter himself was led away by the error of Judaizers and needed to be corrected by the Apostle Paul. So we need a, a habitual sense of our own weakness and danger and the need of the spirit of perpetual vigilance. That's what Peter is trying to stir up in our remembrance. So he launches this third command, beware. Be on guard. And so he ends this epistle in a warm, loving style to his dear friends. This is the fourth time in the chapter he says, be on the guard. Personal word of warning. Observe. Keep. Watch. Guard. Protect. Pursue steadfastness. Live in a safe position. You know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He said, you already know this. I, I wrote to stir up your remembrance. 
Know the truth. Yeah, that word uh, about uh, knowing this already is uh, prognostes, from which we get the word prognosis. I know many of you go to the doctors. I've basically given up on them. But uh, anyways, uh, when, a, when a medical prognosis is given, a patient is better able to prepare themselves for what's ahead and, if possible, correct himself. You get the speech about high cholesterol, well, you start changing your diet and doing all that sort of stuff. So Peter doctors the soul of the church here with warning. He says, you knew this beforehand. It's false teachers all around. Be on the guard. Be forewarned. This warning even going to well-grounded believers that you are not an impenetrable fortress. I think by application, this also applies to the significance of why you need to be tied into the local assembly. Why you need to be tied into the lives of other believers here at Newtown Bible Church. So that we can bounce ideas off each other and, and stimulate biblical insight to hash over scriptural truths and their bearings on life situations as iron sharpens iron kind of mentality. Finally, recognize that the strongest resistance to such treachery of false teaching all around us is met by the strongest believers. Not that you as a believer in Christ are inherently strong, but you're connected to the vine. And so Peter moves from this word of warning to this word of encouragement. Notice his fourth operative word. He says in the beginning of verse 18, grow. Grow. This is not something unheard of. This is not something novel. It's not something new. Grow in grace and knowledge. He ends in a, with a summary statement ending where he began in the first chapter with the sufficient word and the sufficient Christ. Grow. As we pursue Christian maturity and deepen our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll develop greater doctrinal stability and steadfastness in a day where everything's up to grabs. Your only security lies in a firm commitment to God's revealed truth and your unswerving adherence to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.15, we're to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the body, even Christ. Grow up in Christ. As Paul addresses the Colossian heresy in Colossians 1 in exhorting believers to put on the new man to grow. He says in Colossians 1.10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Keep keeping on in pursuing a more intimate, biblically consistent understanding of God's person and His plan. Grow. This is the fourth imperative. Be continually growing. This is the tenor of Scripture. And since it's patently obvious to the casual observer to be an overflow of all of Scripture, Peter, as Paul that he imported here, breaks off into doxology. Having warned them, having encouraged them, 
He commits them to the Lord's care. To him be the glory both now and to the, the day of eternity. The day of days. Peter's praise and prayer is for the Lord Jesus to receive all the accolades and all the glory. The glory of redemption. The glory of spiritual growth. The glory of manifesting the symphony of grace. The glory of escape from false teachers. The glory of His ultimate return in blessing for believers and a horror for unbelievers. That He'd receive it all. So Peter says, when the heavens disappear and the earth and its inhabitants are all stripped bare before the throne of God, strive to make sure your life is pure, having nothing hidden. In contrast to the false teacher in an emphatic position, beginning in verse 17, he said, you therefore, you that know Christ therefore. In contrast to those that pervert Scripture, beware and grow. Take a different view of the return of Christ, the parousia, than the false teachers who say He's not coming, so live any way you want. In contrast to their manner of living, be diligent in pursuit of holiness. Account the Lord's patience and evangelistic zeal to rescue people from the day of the Lord. Because man's worst enemy is God Himself as He comes in judgment. So deliver them so that they run to God as Savior and not have to face Him as judge. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank You for Scripture. We thank You for Peter. We thank You for Paul. We thank You for each of these inspired texts breathed out by the mouth of God, moving the writers of Scripture so that what they wrote was indeed the Word of God which is inerrant. It is authoritative. It is sufficient for everything we need for life and for godliness. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, I pray that we would seek to be those who are blameless, those without reproach, those that are, have spotless testimonies, not because we don't sin, but when we sin, we hate our sin. We run to you. We confess it. We say the same thing as you do. We seek your forgiveness. We receive biblical forgiveness as you assure us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful. You are just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just bits and pieces. We come to the Lord's table in somberness knowing that it's only for believers knowing that we need to be set apart from sin and seek in holiness. Give us grace as you progressively produce Christ-likeness and mature us and grow us in our walk with Christ. Meet with us in our daily devotions. Give us diligence in putting, out a, a, uh, putting together a, a workout regime where we're not forsaking the assembly where we are daily seeking your face in your word and speaking to you in prayer through the access that Christ has paved. Lord, as we get ready for gospel-centered fellowship, would you meet with us there as well? 
when we leave this place, would you, you make us faithful ambassadors, faithful evangelists? Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Prepare our hearts for it in Christ's name. Amen.